the rigor behind the idea makes sense. It's just not applied very well in which, let's say, you post a role and it has 1,800 applicants. And of those 1,800 applicants, there are people, you know, the absolute max of the role is 100,000 and you're not going to be able to pay above that in any way. You know, people that have anywhere between 175,000 and above can be sort of located and then removed because there's just no way that they're going to be interested in this role. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes, where we talk to recruiters, hiring managers, and occasionally HR professionals to lift the curtain on the hiring process so you can better understand how hiring decisions get made. This week, we have a repeat guest. It's actually the first guest from the show. It's no other than Dan Space or Daniel Space or Dan from HR, who if you follow on TikTok or LinkedIn or any of his other social channels, you'll realize is a really great advocate for consumers and their careers, but is also a strong advocate for the HR profession and really tries to tell the truth on what's happening in HR and, and sometimes the tension between the business and HR and finance and HR. And he brings a lot of the facts when it comes to HR. So much so that oftentimes him and I will get arguments online. But this week we talk about topics that are really important to him and really his area of expertise around compensation, job family structuring, comp matrices, how the negotiation process works, the inner workings of how a recruiter talks to a HRBP, how the budget gets released, how the budget gets created even before the position even gets posted. You really get to see Dan's wealth of knowledge on display in this episode, and it's super insightful. There's a lot of really good stuff that should help you unlock negotiating tactics when you are looking to try to get paid. So I highly recommend that you listen to this episode all the way through, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed recording it. Hey everyone, thanks for joining another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This week we are with Dan from HR, maybe Dan Twerk Master Space, oh, or yeah. formerly known as Daniel Space, uh, who is was actually the first guest on this show. I'll reiterate it because I feel like every time I'm on the line with him, I have to. We met when he dunked on us on TikTok, but... <laughs> Like many of my good friendships, they started tenuous, but then became great. And Dan very much is one of those. So Dan, thanks for being with us. Thank you. And yeah, Twerk Master's great. I'm not sure if I can even stick with the Dan from HR with my account being banned for 30 days now. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a Friday afternoon. I think Dan and I are ready to talk about some HR and recruiting stuff, maybe even get a little spicy today. Hell yeah. But in this part two of our discussion, we're going to do a deep dive on comp. That really is Dan's specialty, uh, comp banding. And, you know, we can talk a little about what an HRBP does versus recruiters. Obviously, Dan understands the process quite well, but we thought it'd be good to kick it off with a kind of compensation 101 so you can understand. And I think a little bit of context also, I think company size, I think these things don't apply universally to companies. We talk about job search advice. It's like, hey, do this. You know, big companies need some of these systems and these processes, you know, Teal's 20 people. We don't need some of these, but maybe at 50 people we do. So it'd be kind of interesting to also understand like when certain companies may start to implement some of these processes. Great. Was that an invitation for me to kick off? That's like, let us have it. All right. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for inviting me and thank you for your patience while I blew you off to fall asleep the other night. It was great meeting you. <laughs> great talking to you, even though I am uh, so aggravated that all you do is respond with emojis and one more answers recently. <laughs> uh, that's how I but, keep my sanity. Emoji responses. <laughs> I think that's great. It's so, a way to combat dyslexia. I think I'm going to do it more because it's sort of like it impacted me psychologically where I was like, what is happening? Are you having a bad day? Did I do something? Are you so like getting everyone afraid that you're pissed off at them is actually a great way to build some mystique. I think that's awesome. <laughs> I think I'm going to start doing it. It's really it. not. It's more like, oh, this emoji can convey so much more than whatever gobbledygook and then one word or two words. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess with all of the content that I made, um, the job search content, I enjoy doing because it helps people. But at the bottom, at the other part, I find it boring. Like anytime I talk about resumes I want or LinkedIn or interview, and it's important. I know I have the information, so I'll keep doing it. But the compensation piece is the one that really is the most important to me because there's the most information on it. Um, and so as people who have followed me know, I have been publishing and writing a book on compensation. It is now two thirds done. 
Um, I think it had like 150 pre-sales, which is great. A lot of people were like, oh my God, I didn't know this. So I'm excited now to finish it now that I have the free time. But every time I go back to start reviewing it and editing it, I'm like, oh my God, like this is really good information as compared to what is out there, which is not me trying to, to boast it versus just how secretive this is. So I think the fundamental thing that I really want people to know, and to, to answer your question, this is a great place to start. As it relates to compensation, there are generally six pillars that go into compensation. And once you start to understand and see these pillars in action, it becomes a lot easier to understand how the system works and then especially how to use it to your advantage. So to your point, larger companies have a very different model, very different philosophy than a smaller company. And so that's one of the pillars is, so the six different pillars are company size, industry, revenue, like the, the revenue of the industry, as well as the employee population size, location, type of company that it is, like a nonprofit is always going to be far lower than a, a for-profit company. B2B, for example, is always better than B2C, almost always. The job family that you're in, the job level that you have, and then the secret one, the golden goose that most people don't acknowledge or don't even realize is job family to industry alignment. You want to work in a job family that the industry values. And so what I always uh, use as an example is FANG and engineers. Um, you know, tech for tech is one of the best paying jobs that are in the U.S. right now. It's like it's always in the top 10. But people that work in like marketing or operations are, you know, they'll get paid well because they have good comp philosophies, but that is not an industry that values those roles as much. Now, the thing is totally reversed if you go to a CBG company like Coca-Cola or like Johnson & Johnson. Like being a legalized drug dealer is really great if you work in brand or marketing. <laughs> that, like that's where you're going to find like the really high paying jobs within those fields. Um, but you know, no one is coming for Snapple for their tech stuff. The person who rebranded Ozempic from whatever it's actually called Jeez. probably makes a pretty good salary. Yeah, like they're like the 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 people that come up with like movie names. Like I think the person that designed the Cars title got three hundred thousand. Like the exact same thing. Helping the legalization of drugs. Yeah, right way to make money. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so those are the six pillars. Now, walk us through maybe a little bit. You know, you've worked at large gaming companies, thousands of employees, right? The position's been opened up. It's been budgeted. But now we're actually going to, like, publish it, right? And, I'm, and I need to hire a senior product manager for an existing game line. Mm -hmm. Like, what's that process like? Like, walk me through how those numbers get defined for that role. Because we'll talk about eventually, like, the negotiation that comes downstream of that with the candidates. But, like, How's the company internally define what their budget is? How do they think about it? What are those conversations like? How do you engage as an HRBP in that process? Fantastic. And please take a drink. I saw you reaching for one at the same time I was. <laughs> uh, so normally for larger companies, especially, you have that conversation the year before. Normally speaking, an HRBP, their finance person and the head of the department, usually like one or two other people will get in a room together normally November, December and talk about what growth is going to look like. Um, one of the core functions of a good HRBP is to help translate headcount and headcount needs and business strategies into work design and jobs. Um, essentially, what job family it is, what job level it's going to be, because that then is going to inform the rest of those. The one thing that I think a lot of people don't understand is that your salary is not the budget of your position. So that's why I, I can't stand when people say, what's the budget for the role? Because technically, the budget for the role is much more than your salary, all of these other costs that get into it. And it can be up to like two times your salary. But what we normally do is start working with with finance, you know, the, the lead, myself, someone in my role will say, okay, your organization size is 63. There's a new product coming, a new video game. We've been given $7 million. We're putting $3 million into investment in here where we have to hire five or six different roles. So what we start to do then is we, we review these job family matrices that we create and job levels that we create. And then we work with compensation because companies have access to purchase compensation data. So what they can do is say, hey, what do product managers in video game companies in San Francisco of a AAA title, you know, what is their usual range? And then this, our company can then determine where we want to be on that. We can determine that we want to be a little bit above. We can determine we want to be below. We can determine that we want to put more, much more in bonus. So all of this is part of a compensation philosophy and strategy that happened before the company is ready to hire. Um, because then, you know, at like a lot of companies are going to start this process now. And so when the company is ready to hire, let's say in April or May, all of that is already pre-budgeted. So when we've talked in the past, like there are these data providers, I don't know, four or five of them yeah. that large organizations go to and they've got the job families and the various matrices. 
Like, are those things standardized? Do they all use the same or does the company end up like adopting their taxonomy? So as a perfect example to describe something like this, anyone who works in the finance industry, like if you work at Citibank or Chase, you're a VP, even though like you're a a mid-level analyst. So what these companies use, and there's like five, there's more than five, but like most large companies use one of like four or five, like, and they're, they're international, like they run all of this. I can't wait for Gen Z to come and destroy all of them. But that for right now, it's a pretty brilliant system um, because only companies can access it and companies can only access it if they provide their data. Um, so it's, it's a brilliant system and it's third party audited just to confirm that it's accurate. So that's why it's so much better than things like Glassdoor or Level.FYI. So what they'll do is for something like a Citibank or a Chase that utilizes VPs as a sort of one-off titling system is they will not come back with VP title matches. Instead, they have a very neutral description in which we utilize six different category and components like scope, impact, level responsibility, level of autonomy, level of decision-making. And then against six levels, you get like uh, sort of a description like assists, coordinates, manages, directs, sets a strategy against all of those. So then they'll say, hey, you you can title it whatever you want, but this is actually what we would consider a senior level analyst. And here's the compensation ranges. And is some of that evident in jobs? Like I remember you and I were talking once and you were telling me, like I was trying to, I was asking for your advice on how to label a title at, at Teal. And like if the thing I'll call it was like before or after the symbolic descriptor. So like manager of versus social media manager versus manager social media, right? That that actually like that order, like in the proper HR, whether that got posted on LinkedIn as a job or not, but like there is actually like a, like a science to that when run properly. Grammar is everything on this. Although there's so many like nuances and ridiculousness to it. So it's not universal, but it's really customary. And most larger companies utilize the system um, where they consider something a business process manager or a people manager. Mm. So like a marketing manager or HR manager, finance manager is responsible for that business unit or for that responsibility. Um, If it was manager comma marketing, then of course, they're not only responsible for delivery, but that doesn't mean they're doing it all themselves, but rather they're running a team to do it. So then they have a product marketer and a communications person and a social media marketer. And it's the same thing for director. The problem is twofold. One is that both manager and director have market titles. There's job families that have those one of those two words already baked into it that is so standardized that it's never going to change, like art director, project manager, program manager. So that means you have to have ridiculous internal titles like manager, comma, program management um, or director, comma, art direction if they do art direction as well as direct an organization. And it's usually five levels. It's normally individual contributors that just manage their own work, managers, you manage individual contributors, directors that you manage managers, VPs manage directors, and the C-suite manages VP. And that is the normal job family hierarchy that I would say most companies above at least 500 start to utilize. Got it. But what about... It's like an engineering product management. There's like staff. I just feel like I know, like, I don't know. I just feel like companies shit all over this and they do whatever they want <laughs> at the end of the day. <laughs> For exit, like the, the amount of ego that goes into people's titles where they're like, well, I was told I could be a senior marketing manager. Like you can put that on your email if you want, but internally you are listed as a social media senior analyst. All right. So all this work gets done. There's this codification system. But I, I, look, I do think you said 500 plus is really important. So there's some interesting stats. I don't know them off the top of my head, but around like most people work at companies that are bigger, yet there are more companies that are small than there are big ones. So it's kind of this like inverse 80-20 thing. So, you know, a lot of people work at big companies and big companies have a lot of process. They have different kind of levels of requirement, all sorts of different a lot of laws, I think, kick in once you have certain headcounts and things like that. So one thing that comes up on compensation all the time, since we're trying to debunk and go behind the scenes here, why do some jobs ask for salary on the application? Like what compels a company to do that? To piss you off as a candidate. It is attrition. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> all right, let's see if we can get them past 14th page, upload two more cover letters, and then answer this absurd question. Um, you know, only the strong survive. You know, I am a firm believer that that is dumb. And I normally tell people my content, either put zero or 100 million, you know, put a billion. Those are your salary expectations. But in all honesty, I have happily seen it start to go away. But the idea is rigor behind the idea makes sense. It's just not applied very well in which let's say you post a role and it has 1800 applicants. 
And of those 1,800 applicants, there are people, you know, if the absolute max of the role is 100,000 and you're not going to be able to pay above that in any way, you know, people that have anywhere between 175,000 and above can be sort of located and then removed because there's just no way that they're going to be interested in this role. And so the thought process is to try to at least manage some of the candidates and the candidate pool to be those that would engage further versus like wasting time and getting a candidate excited and doing a phone screen and then realizing there's just a total mismatch. Like the thing I always hear from people is like, well, what if I put in a low number and then they're going to bring that up later in the process? As someone who's hired a bit, like, well, one, I've never asked that, but yeah. I do bring up salary early. I mean, we write it in our JDs. Which great. And that clarity is important. And I, I think it goes both ways. I mean, I think alignment is important. And like what I've seen happen is we put the JD, the person goes through the whole process. And then at the end, like, well, I was actually hoping to get like, you know, let's, I don't know, let's say the job capped out at like 120. We actually even try not to do ranges if possible, but that's becoming a little harder. And like, well, the truth is I was really kind of looking for like 150. It's like, why did you do this? Like, this was our budget. And what I see is like a, people attach like their value based on their skills and abilities. And that might be true, but like, this was our budget. I feel like it's when I go to a car dealership and like, I go in and it's like, this is what I can spend. And then like, they show me this really cool car. And it's like, it's like, yeah, but now you're like, now I'm actually going to resent you because I may do it because I'm tempted. And that sounds really cool. But now I've like blown my budget. Now the pressure's higher. Like I did all this planning and you're kind of like throwing a wrench in it. And now it's like getting complicated. And I feel like that happens a little bit. And from the candidate perspective, it's like, look, it's fungible, it's money. Like you can just make more. It's like, no, like we're trying to be fair. We're trying to be equitable. We're trying, like, we thought about this stuff. There was a system, no one, someone else wanted more money, but we didn't give it to them. And just like all the complexities around like how money gets allocated and, and how you're able to hire with it in a company. And there's so much misinformation about it. So what I find funny is that for all the hate that HR people get, um, our roles are not like to protect the company. Our roles are to try to be as egalitarian and considerate of everyone as possible. So the problem is like we're thinking in terms of all and candidates are very naturally thinking in terms of me, which makes sense. And, and you know, it's, it's certainly a very American of us. But the problem is everyone who's become a negotiation expert or job search expert always says, always negotiate, you can negotiate everything. And especially like for companies that are smaller, where it's a 20, like that budget has to be adhered to. So the idea of agreeing to 120 up to the last step and then saying, you know what, I actually want 150 is just such a, a surefire way to build a lot of resentment. You know, and certainly at larger companies, there may be a little bit more flexibility, but, but there's a reason why we build pay ranges. There's a reason why uh, we utilize comp ratios, which is your placement in the range, because when we make an offer, you know, the company will probably always move to be slightly conservative, like they want you to be excited, but they'll never bring you in like 100% unless you're absolutely amazing because they want to have they want you to have some room for grow. And because honestly, they're taking the risk. They think you're going to do a great job based on your interview. But when you come and start, it could be that, you know, within three months, you're just slacking and then they have to start building like a performance improvement plan, all this other stuff. But why don't companies just come out of this gate and say, this is best and final. We did our numbers. Why can so many people succeed in negotiating salary if a company knows it and like, this is the math we did, best and final, this is all. So it's, what's funny is there's a lot of people that don't know this and, or don't remember this, but in 2017, a lot of companies did. Um, you know, this was before like a lot of the, what are you making now? And the one thing I just want to go back to real quick, because I forgot to mention this, but the, a comp most companies, especially once they hit a certain size, have to be compliant with federal law. And so based on a company's philosophy, all roles, every single hire is going to be brought into a comp ratio range, usually the lowest I've ever seen is like 0.78. Um, so in other words, like if 0.78 for them is 95,000 and you put on an application that you are looking for 60,000, they're not going to bring you in at 60,000. They're going to bring like, because that just creates problems and inequity. That's, that's a problem I have to solve in a year. And I don't want to do that. I would much rather you know, that you, you, that we do. And like, despite people's objections, like recruiters, hiring managers, ourselves, like we love the idea of telling each other that, oh yeah, we're, we're going to pay much more than that. Like that, like, like we want you to be excited and happy. So now as to your question, like I said, there was a hot six months where, where a lot of companies were saying, this is our final offer. And then that ridiculous Airbnb guy came out and said, this is how I negotiated like 300,000 more, blah, 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 blah. And it, what he did was really accurate, but the problem was it was all from a very limited perspective of a candidate. So then like, they were like, oh my God, the company can offer so much money. So then companies started to actually lower their range because they knew everyone was just going to start negotiating. 
Now, I have definitely moved much more towards transparency in, in, in large case because of uh, people like you, like Molly, who sort of convinced me about the value to it. And I agree with it. Like, post the, you know, post the range on the roll. Absolutely. Or a recruiter, when they reach out to you on LinkedIn, should say from the get-go, this is the, the role that we're targeting. At the same time, I understand that technically compensation data is protected information. Right. It's competitive intelligence. So like if Pepsi Cola started to reveal all of their ranges for all of their roles, Coca-Cola could now start targeting them and offering them anywhere between 15 to 20% more and make a lot of targeted hires, you know, which I think would be fun. I'm all about chaos. I would love to see that happen. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that at least is the rationale, the reason for it. Right. It almost, I mean, I was, I forget who I was talking to on one of these shows recently, but, you know, there's an interesting dialogue around like millennials and Gen Z are job hoppy. I think that's the wrong narrative. Totally. I actually think technology has made it very easy for companies to poach. So companies are out like, you know, pulling people out. I actually don't think people really want to change. It's quite disruptive to your life. It's stressful. But when, you know, LinkedIn recruiter makes it super easy to find the person with the exact skill and the exact keyword that, you know, just would have used to been hard to find that person. Like just like the amount of effort to recruit that perfect person just would have been significantly harder. And now basically all I have to do is optimize my LinkedIn slightly, flip this open to work switch without the green banner if I'm employed. That's like, yeah, hey, send them my way. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I agree. I, I think the term job hoppy is so weird because like you could call, I mean, I would be very happy to call my former employer employee hoppy. Um, you know, if, if you're going through a lot of, of attrition, then we should utilize that. And I think the problem is so many companies don't want to acknowledge it, but most people are simply motivated by money as it's we have to live. And if I have the choice of staying where things are okay, I'm good, I'm happy here, and I can make 85, or this new company is offering me basically the same role at 125,000 at a bigger company with better perks. Why would I stay? And especially because like once you start, your salary is so many dumb limitations internally as it relates to like internal progression. Like everyone gets like 3% a year and they have to get promoted, it's like up to 12%. Like in that's great if you make 160,000, but when you're making 40 to 50,000, those numbers mean nothing. Like, I think companies should just embrace, they're gonna have like two to three years before. It's interesting seeing how how the market's responding to some of these things. There's also, this data isn't, I don't think, like real time. There's kind of like a processing to it. You know, I, I think about recruiters. I think they're an interesting one right now, case study. If we go back 12 to 18 months ago, they were getting signing bonuses. You couldn't get one. Every day. And they were highly, highly coveted. And these things change. And I think recruiters are, you know, some of the ones to feel these things the earliest, especially if companies are obviously pausing their growth. So, you know, like what you can make as a salary as a recruiter right now is very different than what you could have commanded 18 months ago. So like, how do companies think about like the local moment from a, like a temporal perspective? So I think the good news is I'm, I'm speaking what I would call with the majority of companies that do best practice. Of course, you're always going to find like the worst of the worst who um, are so focused on trying to maximize every single cent that they do absurd, stupid things. Um, but many realize that if you do something like that, all you're going to do is scare away your talent, um, especially, and you're going to start building a, a negative reputation. Mm. So no matter, so I think it, you know, project management, program management, DEI pisses me off. Um, recruiters also go hit this here. Like every company, like anytime you look at like um, layoffs.fyi, like that's who gets hit. But that's not going to change their compensation value as it relates to their salary. Like a recruiter working, whether or not they're at Google, Coca-Cola, MetLife, Children's Place, Disney, you know, they're still going to be bound by that compensation. The bonus will likely stay the same because we normally attach that to level. And the stock will probably, I would say probably remain the same, but it may have a lower lowest point just because stock usually is based on the market. So like data scientists, you know, and engineers, basically harder to find roles may get the higher end of it, but roles that are uh, kind of in higher supply and lower demand may get the lower of it, but they would still qualify. What the only thing you would really see is probably a reduction of the signing bonuses. Yeah, that makes sense. Because yeah, it creates longer term problems. There is like a little more, yeah. you know, farsightedness to it. Yeah, like in two years, recruiters are going to be just valuable all over again. Yeah, that makes sense. And you have to deal with what you have in the company and you can't sort of have yeah. that disparity. Okay, one of the things we wanted to talk about was helping people with this negotiation process. And there's a lot of sort of advice on how to anchor and how to answer certain questions. I think in both ways, I mean, like why... Why do recruiters ask what's your 
desired comp range. If like they haven't, I would imagine based on all the work you do as an HRBP, they know what their range is. Yeah. Why do they ask <laughs> instead of just like, saying like, hey, this is this is our range. You cool with it? Like, why do people do that? It's so funny because both sides have to acknowledge that there is a power imbalance, but there's also a restriction in play. So the company has the power balance. Like they're the ones that, that own it. You know, they're the ones that can answer the question. At the same time, what, what a lot of companies don't advertise is no matter what you say, there is a target range that the recruiter is going to hit. Like you could say, I'm really looking to make 100. The recruiter is going to say the, the absolute lowest we would pay is 175, um, you know, which is delightful. When people say, you know, if I get lowballed or whatnot, like there's no way you're likely going to get lowballed if lowballed means pay you below the expected sort of lower end of the target range. But those are things that can be asked along the way. In many cases, the reason why employers do it, and a lot of recruiters uh, don't like it either, and I have started to see employers change, it's the, the other thing before, it's competitive intelligence. So they need to know where you're at first before they can respond. But what's that process like? Okay, so say I'm, you're my HRBP, I'm negotiating a candidate, recruiter, you know, I'm the hiring manager, I'm at the end, you know, and we make the offer. This is a senior product manager, the offer is 180. And our internal budget was, I don't know, 170 to 200. And now I come back to you and I'm like, Dan, I really want to hire this person. They're great. Like, makes no difference to me. It's I got it in my budget. But you're like, well, they don't kind of like fall into the matrix. They're missing this particular skill. Like, talk me through that internal negotiation of me as hiring manager trying to like get more money. And I'm, I think finance is off maybe in the mix, depending on like, you know, seniority and dollars we're talking about. But like, what's that behind the scenes? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that oftentimes a hiring manager is advocating, but there's like systems that yeah. need to like sort of be checked. And because yeah, that way people can't just like willy nilly give more money to a friend. Exactly. So the whole thing, when people like say, well, what do you know? You're working in HR. I'm like, I'm literally the one that approves the uh, counter offers. <laughs> I'm the one you're negotiating with. <laughs> So what will normally happen is the recruiter will send me and the manager saying, oh, I made an offer at 170. This is like 0.90 of the comp ratio. And they came back and asked for 195 and 10% more on their performance bonus and 50,000 more on stock. So the first thing that I'll do is that I want the manager to confirm whether or not they would want to pursue kind of like an exception and a negotiation. And in most cases, they do. So the first thing we do is essentially a, a flag and an audit of displacement. So if we bring that person on, who is going to be impacted and why? And so if we bring someone on who has five years of experience and then there's someone who has 10 years of experience and they're at 180, um, especially if they're in a marginalized group, you know, that person of color, a woman, um, and this person, let's say, is a man, like all we're doing is introducing a great deal of risk and inequity. So at that point, then it becomes a one, is it still part of the range? Um, you know, there is a big difference between bringing someone in at 0.95 and bringing someone in at 1.05 where they become risk of getting redlined, where they're not going to be able to get further increases because they've reached the, the max target. So those are all of the considerations. And then I usually have some level of approval authority if I review it and I see, you know, let's say none of those things are real and it's like, hey, you know, we, we have some leverage and some room. This is actually great. You know, I can approve it if it brings things like way past like 1.10 or if it's going to break the break in inequity, then what we usually do is I'll send it to the, the head of the department. Additionally, with compensation, we usually don't involve finance because finance is already assigned. But I would imagine in smaller companies. Yeah, that got approved a long time ago, unless you're like totally busting the budget or something. But that yeah. doesn't happen, I think, for sort of day-to-day -day hiring stuff. No, uh, normally, no. I would imagine in smaller companies probably. But yeah, you know, finance is already assigned. $15 million to make hires. So those are all the questions that we would want. Those are all the ways that we would ask. You know, that's what we would say. So it goes through a large process where we want to review internal equity. We want to review our best practices. We want to understand what risk that makes, how that will negatively impact things in the future, and make sure that the, the manager and the head of the department understand that risk. You know, ultimately, they have the final say-ish unless it violates something to such a concern where I'm like, I cannot approve it. Mm. But you're not like, uh, you have to approve it. Right, like you're required signature. I guess it depends yeah. on the company. We we could do a whole episode yeah. on Sarbanes Oxley and how company writes their own rules for process. And anyways, that was a fun part of my life. But generally, <laughs> you need to sign off. But you're ultimately not accountable, so you're kind of like a check and balance. But they need your signature as the HRBP. Correct. Normally, I would say larger companies, especially within tech, media, insurance, video games, entertainment. I I say you know normally have a the optimal HRBP is what I would call. 
Um, because to have someone that's thinking that way, whereas the manager is just thinking, I need this hire, I need them to start on this project. But the idea of someone who's sort of in charge of running a talent strategy for your entire business unit and is watching how all of these things impact each other is really valuable. As an HRBP, you also help with like the org planning and org design, right? Like you come in and you're like, okay, well, here, let's drop your org chart. What's the right strategy for you? Right. Cause that, that's a design exercise that at the end of the day, right? If they want to sort of nearshore, offshore, some of it, and they want to, you know, what goes in what organization, what rules, what, I mean, all that stuff requires a tremendous amount of planning. Yes. And I love it. It's such a valuable skill and it's so rare. So it's funny is like when I was, especially when I was doing consulting, people were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like something I learned like 15 years ago, I keep up to date every year, but they're like, we didn't know you could do this. Like we just kind of thought you put some names up and have people report to the people they like the most. And I was like, no, there's a strategy and the science to all of this. And it's so phenomenal. And it's so great because you play on motivation, you play on workflow process, you're playing your strategy. You know, you talk about data points like span of control, which is how many direct reports a manager can have between where they becoming inefficient and overwhelmed. So yeah, it's one, it's one of my favorite things. I love doing it. All right. I want to get some free consulting slash semi role play. All right. <laughs> so actually I brought this one up with, uh, Tank Rhodes, and he's like, eh, and I was like, all right, I'll save this one for Dan. Um, <laughs> What's up, Tank? I know, yeah, his episode's coming soon. Okay, so a, a thing that's come up at Teal in particular is there are folks who don't take health insurance because they don't need it. Their partner has better health insurance or, or something, and so they don't take the Teal health insurance. And, you know, honestly, like, if I'm able to, like, take a step back, I'm like, well, that's not fair. Like, Teal's benefiting right? Like that person costs us less because they're not taking the health insurance. And it's like, well, that, that's not cool. Thanks, you know, person for doing that, but it doesn't seem fair. So they come to us and like, well, hey, can I get that money in return? And it's like, sure. And then it's like, wait a second, that's complicated because we do have compans. And so let's just, for easy numbers, let's say insurance is a thousand bucks a month. It's less than that, but whatever. For easy numbers, let's say a person makes a hundred and they're in the hundred comp band and grid. But now they make an extra $12,000. That's 10%, 12% technically, right? And so now when they want to get a raise and like, okay, well, I would like a 5% raise, you know, it was like, well, it's on the 100, not on the 112. And so, but I don't think like humans work that way where, you know, it's like, that's the number that, you know, that's the paycheck I was making every month because you were reimbursing me for the insurance. Like, well, no, that's like a fixed thing that doesn't change. You can't really include that. And so I think that's just where these things like, on the surface that seem very simple. And it's like, sure, it's just math. I have the spreadsheet. Become complicated and organizations just have like layers and layers and layers of scar tissue where these things have gone wrong and they're problematic. And then now the person's like, oh, you know what? I need to switch onto the insurance. Like, well, I'm gonna take that thousand dollars out of your paycheck. And you're like, well, that's not that cool. I was counting on that money. You know, it's like all these things happen. And when you start to like munge these aspects of like how a person, you know, pays for their livelihood, so like, I don't know, like, are, are those things realistic? Like, what are the behind the scenes doors when these situations come up in HR and how do they deal with them? So when you get to a larger size company, especially, which is generally where most of my experience is in, I mean, and even, you know, the, the smallest size company I worked for as an employee was 650 and we, we had nothing like that. So the one challenge to what you said is that that reimbursement would be really similar to a performance bonus. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to reward four of your employees with a performance bonus because the tremendous amount of work they did, provided that you can demonstrate that you did not disqualify people based on other characteristics, that's fine. You know, not every employee has to receive a bonus. So it would be completed like that. So their total comp may be above the range, but it's not as though their salary is. Um, so it's not consistent. So it doesn't violate something. It's, it's a one-time payment. What I was doing really quickly was a quick Google search to see if I could find the answer. Um, but ERISA, E-R-I-S-A, is essentially what governs benefits and uh, the, how benefits work and whatnot. I know there are state and size and like in some cases, I know that there was a broker issue. Mm-hmm. But the idea of being able to reimburse employees who do not take health benefits, I can't say I know the answer off the top of my head if it's legal or not. It sounds like it would be up to a certain size, mm-hmm. provided it doesn't violate a law. I could be wrong. I'm now curious enough that I will Google it aspects, because you've brought this up with me a few times, like, again, let's just say companies that are within the domain of being regulated. There are aspects around that, you know, like we talked about OFCCP with with Chris and Fife, like there's similar stuff with benefits, where like, you can't discriminate, you can't have like some people getting great benefits, others not. There are rules and laws in place around the distribution of benefits and that they be distributed evenly. 
Yeah. So you can't negotiate like, so I think the, and it was in the, the context of like, is benefits something that's negotiable? Um, there's things that are non-negotiable, like benefits, 401k, anything that is governed by a separate entity that requires that there's some sort of fairness and distribution. And then there's certain things that are just internal to companies that you're never going to be able to negotiate. So like the concept of trying to negotiate benefits, I, I tell people to, to, to not really do, especially if they're going to go for a company that's larger. Um, but the idea of trying to get additional compensation for not taking benefits, that can be up to the company to decide if that is part of their negotiation strategy. Um, I believe Shopify actually had something like that, where like all employees got like, you know, let's say $150,000 worth of spend and they could put 10000 in benefits and 130000 in salary and like $10,000 in bonus, something like that. I could have it wrong, but I remember, I thought it was fascinating to, to learn. I thought it was, it was pretty innovative. Provided it's just consistent and it's adherence to legislature, then it, it could be fine. Yeah, it's a tricky thing because, you know, like, like even with the best of intentions, you know, oftentimes something could go wrong. End up going sideways <laughs> and... You know, it's a real thing. I'm, I'm like wrestling through like, the, and the easiest thing is to just say, look, we just don't do it. Sorry, we just don't do it as the company. That's the choice we get to make. But, you know, we're always trying to kind of see like, well, you know, why are things the way they were? Why are they stuck that way? I want to give you a piece of advice that I, I think this is going to be the wave in the future. And this is where I'm going to start pushing once I'm done with all the job search content is I think companies are going to start really benefiting from employee-led decisions. Mm. So instead of like you and one other person making the decision, which can be punitive, or feels like they're not being listened to, have the employees make the decision. Guys, this is what we're thinking. This is what it would look like. This is how you'd be impacted majority ways. Hmm. And now that way, it is not your decision. It is all of your decision. So I like this as like a, as a topic. So I am like very philosophically opposed to variable compensation and like performance comp. I've just seen it be really bad, but I get it that sometimes it can, it can be helpful. But you know, incentives drive behavior yeah, as they should. And the thing about companies, again, super dynamic, like what they're optimizing for at certain times is tricky. And so I've thought about this a lot. I don't have an answer, but like, how do you provide enough context so that decisions are imbued with the right information to have the right kind of judgment. And that's not, I'm not saying like only the CEO has that. That's that's what I want to challenge. That's exactly, you know. Agreed. But there is things that just happen at different like strata in a company. And I'm all for giving everything to everyone. But have you seen anyone do that well? Not really, especially larger companies where it's so difficult to change something from the top. And especially like if, it, if it's a public company and the board of directors and they have to consider the investors of like, hey, we want to make sure that our employees also participate in our bonus planning everyone is just going to be so afraid of the unknown. And it's just like, you know what? The process that we have just, it just works the best. Like we may institute one tiny little thing. There were two companies I consulted with that were much smaller, much more nimble. And both of them did it really, really well. Where that like, they were so sort of surprised doing it first. So like, you walk us through what it was going to look like. And I was like, why don't we try this first? Why don't we do this? And luckily, like, because there were two relatively newish CEOs, you know, they were like, oh, wow, that's so cool. Like, let's try that. Um, but Larger companies, I think, are going to have a huge problem with it. Yeah, there's this great book called, like, The Starfish and the Spider. I think it talks about the organization. Like, a starfish, you can actually cut off one of the legs, and it grows a new one, or the spider, like, if, you know, it doesn't, and you cut off the head, it dies. And it's, I'll send it to you. It's all around, like, bottoms-up organizations. They use, actually, a lot of, like, military examples, mm -hmm. and they kind of compare it to sort of, like, the bottoms-up organic distribution of organizations in, like, the Middle East versus, like, the U.S. that's very, very top-down and like their ability to sort of react. And so it's pretty interesting. And I think that I love the idea of an organization that's more like employee led and they get to decide. But then I think about like, just think about how people manage their finances, right? That's so personal. And right. so then you get into like, like people's risk tolerance and the time horizon that they plan and, you know, all that stuff just gets, again, it's not to say that like the CEO has all the answers, I don't have the answers, but it's like a very tricky thing once you start to like group think. So <laughs> I don't have answers either, but I, I think of like at least two to three years ahead where I've started to see some of the worst. So there was one where we tried something and we had invited, it was like a 67 person company and we invited like 12 people to come in and say, if we were to give, if we were to say 50% uh, of your bonus, we decided by the usual company regulation, but 50%, we want you to come up with 
what the best way to do it is. And I'm going to walk you through three different distributions and you're going to tell me how that will work out. In every case, the prettiest girl got almost all the bonus. No, you're joking. She was like the one, no, she was the one higher in engineering. She was sort of medium in tenure, but everyone adored her. She was also absolutely attractive. And I'm like, I'm the, I'm the type of person that wants to start being more honest and admitting, hey, you find this person attractive. And there's a lot of psychology that suggests we treat people that we find attractive better. You know, they usually do better in interviews. We have this tendency to want to gain their approval and their attention. Um, I usually found people that I would find objectively that meet casual, attractive standards within, especially within marketing and sales, have better commissions, they have better deals. So I think there's some science to it. But the idea that they did it and didn't notice it to the, the extent where I was like, do you guys not see what you're doing? <laughs> so, uh, I was like, the idea is to come up with a fair methodology, not the person that you like the most. But that, I think, is an honest risk. Does it turn into a popularity concept? And then how does that potentially impact laws? Where Because if the laws are saying everyone has to be treated fairly, then how do you do something like that? You know, At least the bonus is for the way a company has can back it up with some sort of methodology and science. I mean, it's bullshit most of the time, but they can say, here's the science and everyone is part of it. Yeah, bonuses are a whole nother can of worms. Absolutely. All right, is there, are there other things that people need to know about comp that we need to get out there myths we need to bust yeah so many um what i would love to is let's run through two quick simulations where you are a recruiter and i'm a candidate and you ask me what my salary expectations are and i'm going to give you the worst possible answer and then the best possible answer okay hey dan thanks so much it's been great interviewing with you everyone really liked you you knocked it out of the park on the technical so it's about the time we start to you know talk logistics would love to hear uh, what are your salary expectations? Um, yeah, I really love this opportunity too. I'm so excited. Um, why don't we, one, talk about salary a little bit later as I start to understand more and more about the role? Or two, what's the budget for the role? Don't do either of those things. Now, in, what I tell people all the time is that you may get a good response, but one, like to try to pawn off the compensation conversation later, you're... One, a recruiter is not going to pass you until they know that you're going to be within their range somehow to ask. So to, to respond like any of that, you're not going to get anywhere. And two, if you ask the budget, one, like I explained before, the budget is much more than your salary in many cases. And two, you may get a recruiter that's like, oh, yeah, here, yeah, here it is. Here it is. Um, but then you may also have someone who, because they evaded the question, a recruiter is now going to be a little bit nervous. And they're like, well, are you going to evade other questions? And so instead of giving you like 85 to 95%, now they're going to give you that 80 85%. It was funny. So many people are like, oh, well, it's only worked for me. I'm like, because you don't know that you could have been offered higher. You don't have that piece of information. So that is the thing that I really want people to stop doing. And this doesn't mean you can't bring up salary first. If you start then, and I've done this uh, you know, several times saying, hey, before we get started, um, I really appreciate that you reached me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, before I hop on this call, what is the target range that, that you're thinking? Just make sure we don't waste each other's time. Like, you can bring it up first. Just don't evade the question. And What's what's the right way to ask that question? Because right? you said don't ask the budget, but we're I mean we're you know if we sort of go towards intention, how can we ask what what's the right language to ask a recruiter or someone on the hiring side what they are willing slash expecting to pay for this role? So there's two. One is if you feel confident, like if you have a lot of experience within your industry, you generally kind of have, you know, you've, you've been around, you've worked for a larger company, smaller, medium companies generally copy larger companies and just pay a little bit less. If you feel confident enough, the best thing to do is to give a large range and then say that, refer to it as total compensation and not salary, and then ask a lot of questions. Um, how does that compare against the range of the position? How does that compare against recent hires that you have made at similar levels? How does that compare against internal equity? Does this company utilize comp ratios? And if so, would you be able to tell me um, what is your philosophy as it relates to the target? Do you always go for like 0.8? Do you go to 0.8 to 0.85? Do you try to hit above? You know, um, so that's one. And then, then the last one is what can you share about the company's philosophy as it relates to market? Do you usually try to pay at market rate? Do you usually go above? And in many cases, the recruiter might not answer all of those, but that is a much better way to feel far more confident about the information you get. The other approach I suggest, and this scares a lot of people, but people have started writing me saying they've used it and looked work, is to really reframe that the recruiter is not your enemy. They get absolutely no bonus, you know, based on where they bring you in. They want to close you. They reached out to you because they think you're a good fit. They actually want to do well for you. So, like, if you've never worked in this industry before, you have no idea what you're doing, you can say, 
I am a little bit hesitant to answer this question. I don't want to seem invasive, but I just I have no idea about this industry or this location, and I'm afraid of giving a number that might damage myself. Could you help me with the question as it relates to what does this range normally kind of look like? If you were in my shoes, what should I say? And I, most of would be like, oh, yeah, of course. Like They don't want you to feel bad, but it's just don't do any kind of evasion. But then why do they ask? Because it's a competitive intelligence. But they don't have to ask. I agree. I'm 1000% with this. So the idea, so I, I worked with a few companies that continue to do this and they're like, well, you know, we just, we need the recruiter, you know, we need the candidate to go first. I'm like, there's literally no reason why you're just holding on to some sort of old archaic concept. It is not as though that candidate is going to post saying, they offered me this. You know, certainly when you post ranges publicly, that could come, you know, to competitive intelligence, but this is so dumb. So it's like, if they say it, they think like the person could post it online. So even though yeah. the salary is not in the JD, by revealing it, now it's out there. Yes. And so they've said it verbally and it could be shared. Yep. Which is why they, I've even had a cases where like a recruiter won't put it in a LinkedIn message, but they'll call me and tell me. And I'm like, I mean, I get it, but this is so absurd. That's interesting. Okay, got it. That's, that's helpful, actually. I didn't really understand it that way as it's not that they're trying to hide it from you. They're trying to hide it from the public. Correct. Yeah, there's no one in any company, I don't want to say no one, we know, sure. we know what happens in Apple Salutes, but the general practice is no one wants you to be underpaid. People want you to be excited for it, but they just have to consistently think about internal equity, fairness against the position, what the role is going to look like, what is your salary going to do as it relates to displacement? Yeah, that's a bizarro misconception yeah. that like recruiters get some sort of spiff for <laughs> <laughs> reducing the budget. Like, what? <laughs> I know a lot of recruiters that would love that, but yeah, no, they, they already have their salary and bonus pre-calculated. Yeah. And it's usually or, like their bonuses are usually like time to hire, stuff like that. It's around like getting people in the building faster. Never is it like, hey, you got people in for cheaper than what we budgeted. Yeah, it's usually not a metric. It's normally quality of candidates, time to hire, time to fill. The managers that you work with, their consideration that you understand their business, ability to innovate, to, you know, source and innovate. But, okay, just to play devil's advocate, then why don't people's companies just come out with the max? If it's like, hey, we just want to get this done, why don't they just come out with the max? Here's our max. Like, why F around with ranges? Why negotiating a thing? Because people do negotiate every day. Right now, someone is getting more than what they were offered. So companies won't offer the max because they have to understand your ability to do that first. What we try to do, and it doesn't always work out, but your place in the range is demonstrative of your skill and competency within it. If you're at 0.83 to 0.85, the logic is that you're performing at a lower level because you're new to the role and that with more time and experience, you would then increase in the range. And the idea of being 0.1 or uh, to be 1.0 is that you're at full competency and mastery. There's nothing more that you can really learn. You are performing everything to the job. So the idea of giving a range is to provide flexibility based on the interview. Um, so the pur purpose of the interview is to understand how well you can do this, to understand how good you are with this, to understand your experience with this, so the company can try to make a good estimation of that. And that's where roles like mine kind of come in, sort of say, let's review all of their responses. Do you think they're at 0 0.80? Are they at 0 0.90? Are they at 0.1? And, you know, are that 1.05? If so, then... Let's offer 0.95, but give a higher stock or give a sign-on bonus to, you know, something that sort of acknowledges that they are worth more than where we may offer on salary, but with a considerable financial incentive to make up for it. Is part of it, like, I'll tell you my thought process is a little yeah. company, right? I sort of believe in smaller raises more often. Well, and is part of it, like, if we start this person at 1.0, right? So 1.0 is mastery, like bullseye, like they, they meet the JD exactly the next move would be a promotion, right? Because they achieve everything. I mean, it's part of it, like, look, we need to give ourselves a little bit of room to give them more when they have area for growth. This person, like, you know, well, they might not get promotable or is it like de-risking a little bit? Because it's, they're also just like not big numbers on the aggregate, right? Like there's the company, you know, it's like, oh, well, I've seen people getting fights over like 5K on 150K position. It's like, on a monthly basis, this is negligible to the business. It might be meaningful to the person, right? That might like cover a nanny, that might like all sorts of stuff that actually like unlocks their life. But like, it's negligible to the company. Um, the problem with that is if, if you keep thinking what's negligible to a company, at what point does it become non-negligible? And why does this person receive the benefit versus another one? <laughs> yeah. Where we usually try to find balances, and this is why I prefer to work for larger companies because you have different lead levers and whatnot. And this is where org design comes into play so greatly because not everyone is promotable. And the idea of building and understanding your organization as it relates to 
people that have ambition, people that have potential, people that have desire and want to grow versus you want to also have people who are just happy to do their job and they don't want anything more. It's always good to have like underdeveloped people because that's muscle managers can, can learn. Can you turn a low performer around? And then when we look at things like that, there should always be some sort of financial accountability if someone is not getting a raise. Like one of the worst things are like if someone is close to redlining and you give them like a 0.08% increase or 1.1 increase, and you, there's a science and methodology to it, it was just the max they could give. But to give someone, and especially if they have a good rating, like you're rated five, here's your 1.04% increase. But the idea of doing something like that is to then make give them more on bonus or give them more on stock to say, we want to recognize and reward your high performance. You are just maxed out. We should do a whole nother one on performance and raises. I would love to. Yeah. This is all job searching. Well, Dan, this was awesome. I feel like we covered a lot of fun stuff. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Success. We need to now do a part three. Hell yeah. Um, But thank you as our first repeat guest. This was awesome. And uh, thank you. How can folks find you online? Hopefully by the time this gets released, my dad from HR on TikTok is back. (laughs) If not, you're still banned. I posted and tagged the CEO today and the C-suite saying, I, this is my last straw. I'm tagging all of you. I have nothing left to lose. One of you needs to fix this. So Dan from HR is like my handle on Instagram and Twitter, YouTube. I just started and Facebook. Dan from HR.com, the website is finally launching in two weeks. So that will be the best place. So if you hear this before that, check back in two weeks. Awesome. We will link to all these. I just like to give people a chance to sort of do the promo. Oh, thank you. But Dan, this was awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. And we will do it again soon. You got it. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We wanna give people that inside view to what it looks like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one.